на трибунах холеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. We're joined this week after what was one of the most entertaining and by far the highest scoring game weekend in the RPL of the 2020-2021 season so far. To join me, it's just the two of us. It's myself and Richard Pike. Good evening, James. How are you? I'm not good. <laughs> let's, get it, let's get it straight <laughs> out from there. Um, the let's go. I think everyone will know why, obviously, is the resident Spartak fan, but Spartak were defeated. Oh, no, sorry. Spartak weren't defeated. Zenit won 7-1 in the game against Spartak at the weekend. Uh, to quickly, before we do discuss the game, I'll just go through some statistics that resulted from the match itself. It is the heaviest domestic defeat in Spartak history, joint heaviest domestic. Uh, that's in their entire history as well. Um, it is the heaviest in RPL history. Uh the heaviest loss of Rui Vittoria's career, the most goals conceded by Spartak in three consecutive matches, which is at 13. Spartak have now just got two wins in the last 15 games against Zenit. That includes seven Zenit wins as well. And in that time, 33 Zenit goals against just 18 of Spartak. And it's just five wins in the last 28 meetings between the two for Spartak. From the Zenit end, uh, Artyom Zuber is now the joint top goal scorer in RPL history. And Sardar Azmoun also broke a similar record as he's the joint top, or leveled a similar record rather, as he's now the joint top foreign goal scorer in RPL history. It was pretty much the magnificent seven for Zenit, while you'd think that Spartak are probably more so like seven psychopaths after that game. Richard, how did you think it went down? I think it's going to be pretty obvious to see where a lot of the conversation lies with Probably that's Bartak defence. Well, yeah, I mean, Zenit obviously had those two slip-ups, didn't they, against Arsenal, Tula and against Sochi. I mean, the Sochi game was conditioned by the red card to um, Sadov Azmoun, which I never I never thought was a red card. I thought they were a bit unlucky with that one. But, yeah, if ever there was a result to define the superiority of Zenit in the league at the moment over the other sides, then this was it. Um, it was a... Very good performance from them. Very complete. Um, Sardo Asmoon had a great game. Claudinho continued his good form. Two in midfield. Wendell and Barrios continue on really strongly. Um, I have to say, even though we'll get on to Spartak in a minute with, with my analysis, that for some of the goals that Zenit scored were brilliant. The second one from Claudinho, there was absolutely nothing that Spartak could do about that. It was just a sensational strike from what looks to be a very, very good player. He just seems to improve time over, you know, with every game. Yeah, And I I really enjoyed Asmoon's... To be fair to Asmoon, that first goal, even though Rakitsky could have been closed down for the cross, he did very, very well to target Ayrton Lucas when jumping because, obviously, as a striker, he's taller than Lucas, who's a full-back stroke wing-back. So, classic um, centre-forward play, get get on the... Wing back, stroke full back, and head the ball home. And I think he did. I think um, Zuba did that for the seventh goal as well on Raskarzov. Um, but yeah, we've got to get on to the Spartak horror show. Um, it was just, just dreadful, wasn't it? And you know, so so soon after the calamitous performance against um, Leicester in the Europa League, after being two 0 up, just another horror show. And um, 
you could definitely tell during the game that um, Zenit were targeting um, the right channel of Spartak um, in the, the mm. three at the back formation. They were targeting um, Maximiliano Corfrier and uh, Nikolai Raskar's offside. And yeah, it's, it's it, it just it's such a weak point for Spartak in the defence. Um, and the fourth goal was just <laughs> it was just dreadful, wasn't it? I think I think Corfrier played. I think it was uh, Mostovoy on side, <laughs> and then and then curiously when he rounds uh, Maximenko Mostovoy to slot home, Corfre is almost slowly running back. To me, he should be absolutely pegging it to get back on the goal line because when Mostovoy's rendered the keeper, he's just going to put it anywhere at the goal. He's just he's not even going to try and place it. He's just going to put it anywhere at the goal. Just burst a gut to run back, but he was just very slow getting back there. You should have been, he might not have got it anyway, but you know he. Yeah, he should have been really busting a gut to get back there. Um, and then later on in the game, you know, after <laughs> after I think Claudinho stole in ahead of Raskar's off to I think I think it might be Maximenko who made a save. It bounced to Colfrey in the box, and then he just took down Asmoon in the box. It was a clear penalty, and then got his second yellow card. His first yellow card was from a blatant shit pull on Wendell in midfield. Um, yeah, let's just say he's not looked. Very good so far. Definitely doesn't look like a, a Spartak quality player. Raskarzov just carries on getting exposed. I, I think for the fifth goal, I've forgotten who scored the fifth goal, but it came from the, the left side. Lucas was beaten um, with a cross in the box. I think it was from uh, Karavayev and then, yeah, Raskarzov again. Yeah, Mostovoy again, yeah. And then Raskarzov just got outpaced for, by Mostovoy and you know, he tapped in at the near post. Mm. At the post he was at, and yeah, just, just, yeah, just a disastrous performance from Spartak, and more of the same problems that we were starting to see at the beginning of the year starting to emerge now. After they went on a little mini revival, yeah. it's only a mini revival. It's now been well and truly shut down, and and yeah, already the chance to qualifying for you at this for next season look looking slimmer by the day. But yeah, a great, uh, a fantastic win by Zenit to underline their superiority and leave anyone in no doubt as to who the favourites for the title are this season. It's a little depressing from a Spartak point of view that you actually lost count of how many goals they scored during the game. Um, But I I will want to preface anything that I say about the game by, while I'm going to be berating Spartak as a Spartak fan, I mean, this is a fan site, we're not journalists, we have just fans of the RPL. speaking for myself at least, uh, I do want to preface firstly that Zenit were absolutely outstanding on the day. Uh, Claudinho's goal was brilliant. Mostovoy and Asmoon, the braces, they were everywhere. Um, Wendell just controlled and dictated everything in midfield. The only downside was the fact that Spartak actually managed to score through Promes and maybe the early injury to Douglas Santos. I think he's probably the most consistent player in the entirety of the RPL. He's just a solid 7 out of 10 every single game, at the very least. So hopefully he was obviously replaced quite early by Daniel Klugavoy. Hopefully that's not too bad of an injury uh, for him and Zenit, particularly with some very, very difficult games and a big run-in coming in before Christmas. <sighs> it was just... What Zet, what really impressed me about Zenit was their ability in behind Spartak. 
using the space behind the defensive line and Spartak's own high pressing and high defensive line against them. Obviously, the the game against Leicester was very much not just setting off alarm bells from Spartak's point of view, but any Zenit scout watching that must have just been licking the lips, knowing that Samu Gijo was out, who's one of Spartak's key defenders. Maximilian Alcofrier had to come in for him. So you at that point, you knew that Raskasov would be starting at right centre-back, flanked alongside by a less experienced, not as talented defender. And as you said, Richard, Kofrier and Raskasov are probably the two worst players on the pitch, followed not far by Alexander Maximenka. Um, and it's Spartak just, uh, sorry, Zenit just continually took advantage advantage of that. Um, for the, I think it was after the game in the press conference, Semak actually said something along the lines of the, uh, the plan was to keep hold of the ball um, early on and and just keep it keep things quite solid early on, knowing that Spartak would would get at them and fly out the traps. That's exactly what happened. But the, I think in the in the early stages of the game, Zenit didn't really control much of the ball. I think they only had like forty to fifty percent possession at home. Obviously against Spartak, that was. And then after that, once they got the first goal, they just absolutely flew out the traps. Um. Promes, Sobolev and Larson were just ineffective, totally marshaled by Chistyakov and Lukitsky in, in particular. Um, and they usually, and, and, and because of, to, to try and nullify Spartak's attack, uh, Semak set his three up in like quite an aggressive stance. Uh, the, he pushed them much higher up than what you would usually see. Not just by Rakitsky and Lovren, but also Chistyakov. That was the main difference. When you see you see quite a lot of Rakitsky and Lovren or whoever it is on the right of Zenit's three pushing quite high to progress the ball. But it was Chistyakov also pushed very high up and real put a squeeze on Sobolev. And it just took any form of outlet that Spartak tried to input, uh, input onto the game early on totally out of it. When they were in possession, it kind of morphed into like a 4-2-3-1, as you would expect. They would all step up. Um, Douglas would go up and support Barrios and Wendell would move up the pitch even further and Rakitsky would kind of shift around from centre-back to left-back as he always does where he's really good at just pushing the ball up and progressing from central defence and I thought it was just a while early the first five minutes or so it was quite standard Zenit the kind of the then it was a tactical decision to stay like that and then ramp it up and become super aggressive. And this aggression really, really highlighted Spartak's weaknesses. And obviously that weakness is in behind, like you said, Richard, that right-hand flank, uh, Spartak's right flank, exposing that pace, exposing in behind, getting Asmoon running in. That's why Asmoon started and not Zuba. It's horses for courses. And he's absolutely brilliant at exposing smaller defenders who are not good in the air. I mean, he's air really brilliant anyway. And particularly making runs off the shoulder. And I thought Zenit were excellent at that all of the game. Um, It puts Rui Vittoria in a little bit of a difficult position because he, well, one of the main sort of traits that you've seen from Vittoria in Spartak's early time, especially in the pre-season, obviously it's only pre-season, so a pinch of salt there, but was how he organised the defence. Um, Tedesco 
famously kind of had spot attack all attacking, but a little bit of a glass cannon, very, very weak at the back. So Vittoria initially tried to shore things up. He dropped the team down. He increased the compactness over the entirety of the side. In, in the it was designed more to put not as much pressure on the ball, but more so leave space and fill the spaces in between, which is in, in following his own defensive principles that he's had at Benfica and everywhere else that he's been. In under Tedesco, the wing backs broke the high the line with really high positions, even against teams that would play a back four. Free spaces would then arise behind these wing backs. In the last week or so even longer, a month maybe, we've seen more of that. Spartak have actually had better results until the last four games than they started under Vittoria. They had a nice little run going together. But that in doing that, it, they became more attacking. They pushed higher up. They lost that compactness. And when they're now playing the three, it's very similar to the Tedesco one where they would push on and the wingbacks would push on high Moses is always attacking. He's always looking forward. Zayeta and the same. And there would be these huge free spaces that would arise between them, behind them. And that's exactly what Leicester took advantage of. It's exactly what Zenit took advantage of, even better. It was because of Zenit. I mean, it's wrong. Leicester's team was still good. But Zenit's aggression really highlighted Spartak's weaknesses for me. Um I'll I'll stop monologuing now because I could probably be here, <laughs> be here all day talking about um, Spartak's defensive weaknesses. <laughs> but I, I agree with you, Richard. I thought Claudinho's goal was brilliant, and that that front three was just unplayable, even without Malcolm. Um, Super strike, but, wasn't it? So good. What did you think of Mostavoy's performance? I know you've said that he scored two goals, but I think he was obviously taken off uh, just towards the end, replaced by Alexis Sotoman. But it looks like this year in general that he's he's really quite maturing as a player, even though, I mean, he's obviously only still 23, so lots of time to grow. And this is his first goals for some quite some time. But you can just see in his performances that he's a lot less ball-hungry, if that's the right word, if you, if you get what I mean. Yeah, I've been impressed with him in the games that I've seen of Zenit. Um, obviously, he had that good loan spell at Sochi, didn't he? Um Maybe it took a year to adapt, but um, but yeah, no, I, I've been impressed with him. He had a good game on Sunday. Um, yeah, just to echo what you've been saying, um, to echo what you said earlier, James, as well. Um, just want to say that you know, for as bad as Spartak were, I thought I thought Zenit were outstanding. Um, even if Spartak had played better, I think Zenit would have just you know still beaten them. They were they were right on it that Sunday. Fantastic performance from them. And yeah, it'd be interesting to see um, how they go into the match upcoming against uh, Dinamo tomorrow. Should be an interesting game for them. Uh, it is obviously it is at Zenit, and then uh, they've got a big game in the Champions League away to Juventus. So um, big games coming up. I wonder, given Zuba's um, quite disappointing performance against Juve in the opening game, whether they might actually start Asmoon alongside Malcolm and Claudinho against Juve. Because um, I felt maybe one thing they lacked was a bit of bit of pacing behind when they, you know, Zuba isn't obviously the quickest. So I think I think they probably might start Asmoon in that game. But yeah. Um yeah, I say as yeah, I say Mostavoy has done well. I've been impressed with him and uh, I've been impressed more with Simakaz shown some tactical development this season, which has been good. You know, he's he's reverted yeah, formation. Certainly. 
yeah, I, I've I've liked it. So um, hopefully, fingers crossed, it continues. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it was Semak's tactics that cut. I mean, Zenit would have won that game the way they played, but Semak's tactics in although Leicester was a blueprint, he identified how to attack that weakness even stronger, and that's what resulted in the seven goals. It could come down to goal difference at the end of the season, European places, whatever. I mean, probably not the league, I would expect Zenit to, to get that one up, but it was just the the nature of the win in the gloating that Zenit deserve from the performance is a lot of that down to his tactical decisions. Um, I thought they won everything in midfield. I thought Wendell and uh, Barrios were outstanding again in midfield. Wendell's really developing into becoming a, what what you would see is like a real Zenit signing, like a, a Witzel sort of signing, if a little bit cheaper and maybe maybe not at the same level, but he, he's developing further and he's younger as well. So really excited by him. Um, I think I think Spartak's problem. Yes, Riskasov is not good enough. Yes, there are issues in defence and the spaces that they're leaving behind. But I think a lot of their problems do come from midfield. Um, they didn't replace Kral, and that was massive. Kral really did a lot of the water carrying, a lot of the groundwork, the dirty work, whatever you want to call it, or any of those aphorisms for for their midfield last season. Jorit Hendricks, Jorit, I would say, isn't quite as good as him but playing this tactic that Vittoria has now where it's more aggressive less compact more attacking require, requires real agility and and stamina and discipline in the in that pivot Spartak don't have that in consistently strong form right now uh, Ruslan Litvinov has performed well on and off but he's arguably out of position and is certainly inexperienced Zobnin hasn't had the greatest, isn't in the greatest of form. In my opinion, the best midfielder in, the, in their team this season, Nailam Yarov, is out injured. And against fast-thinking players like Wendell, like Barrios, Spartak really struggle. It was ex- the same problems emanated against Leicester when they had their defence with bloody Yuri Tielemans in, and we all know how good he is. They don't have the time to cover the ball. They don't think fast enough. They can't think fast enough against players of Tielemans, Wendell and Barrios' quality. That's why they really struggled in these last two games, in my opinion. I think it it does start at the midfield structure and it, it, it kind of manifests from there. It particularly manifested itself in the Europa League, both against Leicester and Legia. Uh, they were caught on terrible counters, caught on the turn. Both midfielders were in both games. Um, even against Napoli, arguably six out of the eight goals. Uh, in Europe, this has has done that. Now, obviously, in the RPL, these structural issues arise far less often. Um, a lot of teams, because Spartak are good at pinning teams back, they're good at controlling teams in their opposite opposition's final third. Um, against more defensive teams, you don't see that as much. The RPL is a defensive league, but when you play your your Zenits, it really, really does show up, and they really do just get purely outclassed. Something needs to change, particularly in these games, the top of the table games, once against your Zenit, your Dinamo, Siska, Krasnodar, whoever at the top right now. Um, or they'll continue to flounder in mid-table. It's There's rumours that um, Daniel Klusevich is joining Spartak. There's rumours that Vittoria could be, is potentially changing his approach. 
Um, I think that would be welcomed. I think he has to. I don't think he has a choice. But I'll I'll finish that there on my end. Richard, anything else to say on the on the uh, big game at the weekend? Yeah, I want to echo your thoughts on the Spartak's midfield, James. It, it is a huge issue for them. Kral obviously leaving is a huge blow. And Hendricks has not been brilliant since he arrived. He's done okay, but again, definitely nowhere near Kral's level. And I agree with you, they're missing on Yarov in that midfield. You know, Litvinov, you know, promising young player, but, you know, you saw it at the weekend, the experience that the likes of Barrios and Wendell have compared to Spartak's midfield. Uh, and yeah, I agree, Zobnin slowly seems to be on the way down. Don't know whether injuries are starting to have an impact on him. I think with Kral, Spartak really should have handled that a little bit better, I think. I think they should have said to Kral at the start of the year, sit at the summer, if you want to go, we prefer you to make a decision no, so because we're, we're working with the foreigner limit, we have to try and get a replacement in. The fact that it was done so late, it just gave them so little time to get replacements in. And yeah, I mean, Husevic is an interesting pickup for Spartak, but I think they definitely need to be looking at bringing in a midfielder soon. I definitely think that's an area yeah. of the squad where they need to strengthen. And to be honest, it's one of those things with Vittoria. He hasn't been brilliant so far, but let's just say Spartak were to, were to try another coach. They're not going to get anybody decent till the summer. So you'd be getting a caretaker until the end of the season. Who knows where that might lead. Yeah, I think it's just a simple case. They've just got to ride it out till January and see what they can do with the squad then. Because until mm-hmm. then, I just think Vittoria is pretty powerless to do anything really. But yeah, the midfield definitely. It was like men against boys in that in that midfield at the weekend. I think Zenit just totally overrun them in midfield with Barrios and Vendel. So that's an area of Spartak squad which definitely needs to be addressed in the winter window. Yeah, totally. I think I, I'm not a massive fan of Vittoria. I think he's a little bit dull. I've mentioned it before. I'll not go into it again. Um, but I feel I feel sorry for the bloke. He's been given a shed to build without a tool set nor any nails to to put the shed together with the summer was an absolute disaster and that's not him that's above his remit i, I mean whose remit is it because there's like a cavalcade of sporting directors joining and leaving at that place why we all know why for doing at the top but it's just a mess absolute mess and it needs sorted out and like you said richard i agree it's, it's not going to be anything short term um i'll quickly finish on zenith because i feel like i don't want to underestimate my thoughts on zenith's performance and how good it was uh, I really liked Semak's comments after the game, where he said that uh, regarding our tactical pattern, it was more convenient to play us with Serdar, so Zuba remained in, deserve, in reserve. It's a little bit alluding to what I said myself earlier, um, but basically Zenit's counterattacks were just outstanding. Sparta could not cope with them whatsoever because of their own issues, but more so because of Zenit's own ability to carry them out. Vittoria wanted to play aggressive. He wanted to ha- push high and press high up the pitch. But is that was that the correct thing to do against Zenit? When you assess the capabilities of Spartak squad comparatively to Zenit squad, individually and as a collective unit, it's just night and day. Zenit are far better in just about every single aspect throughout the pitch. Um, it's a little bit like what um, Tedesco did himself, but I think he had his players playing better. He had a little bit more backing. He had Kral, which, like I said before, was a vital difference. Um Zenit were just absolutely brilliant. These sort of games often occur from, uh, I don't know what the correct word is, um, not mistakes, but maybe mistakes, defensive mistakes or freak incidents or something like that, where you would see seven goals, like a, 
a crazy own goal or like a wicked deflection would would get one or like it would be like three or four numerous mistakes in a row and it would be quite an even game aside from that sometimes but this one was like genuine absolute domination i'll end by just saying that zenit had 15 free kicks in and around zenit's final third an npxg which is um expected goals not including penalties of 3.72 which is huge and seven clear cut scoring chances all of those metrics are the highest in the league in any individual game this season so it wasn't just Spartak's poor defending it wasn't just mistakes on the Spartak end it was an absolute domination by by Zenit and that's why the podcast is going to be called their magnificent seven it's one of the best RPL performances I've seen in quite some time Probably since last time Senate destroyed Spartak. <laughs> it happens quite a lot. But uh, we'll, I'll, I'll move on from, from Senate and Spartak now. And Richard, you've been keeping an eye on some of the other games this weekend. Uh, where do you want to go? Do you want to go Dinamo or Siska? We can do either or one. David's not here. The cats are free. <laughs> I'll do um, Siska, actually, because we didn't mention them on um, last week's pod. Um, I've watched the last two games against Ural away and against uh, Quilio at home, and they've picked up two wins. And, you know, they've slowly been climbing the table. I think they're actually up to third now, Siska, behind Dinamo and Zenit at the top. Um, we all had a, we all raised our eyebrows when um, Alexei Belizutsky was given the job in the summer, um, following on from Ivica Olic's, you know, short and unsuccessful spell in charge. Uh, he had a difficult start. I think they lost two of their first three matches. But in recent weeks, they've been improving. They they uh they got a 2-0 win away against Nishni Novgorod before the international break, in addition to a 0-0 draw at home against Krastadar. Um, and their last two matches, as I mentioned, against Ural and against Quilia, they won. The Ural game was a classical, you know, away performance. You know, just be solid at the back. Ural didn't particularly threaten a huge amount, but be solid at the back create chances and eventually one will come your way and that's exactly what happened I mean the goal was a little bit fortuitous the way it arrived I think I think it was Obiakov who was trying a pass into the final third and he didn't quite find his man but it, it, it took a deflection off the Neural player and bounced straight into the path of Chidari Juke who did a brilliant finish to slot it home into the corner and that won them the game I thought Yaka Biol was very good against Durrell, um a rock at the back for them and I've got to say, I've got to take my hands off and admit, uh, he was one of the players last year I didn't think when he went out on loan to Hanover in the two Bundesliga, I didn't think he had much of a future at Siska. But uh, I will give him a lot of credit for turning it around. And I'll also give Alexei Buzitsky a lot of credit too for finding him a different position. Obviously, whenever I've seen him in those deep midfield roles, uh, Jakob Biol, I've never really been that impressed with him. However, he has been very good at centre-back. Um you know, he's pretty much played the, the whole of the season so far. And it's been a successful conversion job by Alexei Berezutsky. Um, You know, he's partnered Igor Deveyev there some games. Deveyev was injured um, in the game against Ural and in the game against Quilia. He did not start. He was actually paired with Kirill Nababkin. Um, and both of the pair of them held out quite well, um, admitted against lower-end RPL opponents. But it was a makeshift uh, back back. For defensive too because you'd think when both are fit and available uh, Bruno Fuchs and um, Igor Deveyev will be the starting centre-backs but you know a makeshift defence you know got through the game perfectly well and um, I thought Biol got man of the match from Match TV which um, you know highlighted 
know how, how good a game he played. Ijuke was very good too at drawing fouls, um, and he really came into his own in the game against Quilly. He he was awarded man of the match in that in that game. Um, I've got some stats actually which highlight his continuous improvement. He he's really taken the mantelpiece, hasn't he, in, in recent weeks, especially from um, from um, in in Siskar from um, Nikola Vlasic's departure. He's suddenly now stepped up and become the star man. I've got some stats here from Ijuke. Um Compared to last season, last year he had 2.84 shots per 90 minutes. This year it's three shots per 90 minutes. Shots on target per 90 minutes. Last season, 1.14. So far this season, 1.2. Goals per shot, last season, 0.1. This season, 0.13. So these are subtle improvements, but you know they are an improvement and we've still got quite a lot of the season to go. Already he's looking... Um, you know, a lot, just generally a lot better um, increased input in terms of goals, in terms of his overall play. He, he's, he he really is a delight to watch at times when he gets going. He's got that lovely turn of acceleration that allows him to get clearer defenders and he can just take defenders on and, you know, zip past them so easily. Um, he's got good feet and, yeah, he's quickly become the star man in uh, Vlasic's departure. Um, and what I've what I've also liked about uh, Alexey Berezitsky in this in the game against Quilia was he tried three different formations. He started out with a four two three one. Ivan Obyakov, by the way, has been moved back to midfield in the last couple of games. Uh, Georgi Shinikov is back fit now, so hopefully he can stay fit and get a run of games at least till the January window. I don't know whether they will carry on playing Shenikov there or whether they might invest in a new fullback, but it's better to see Obliakov in midfield, although he didn't do a particularly bad job at left-back, to be fair. Um, at least it shows he is versatile and can play there if that position ever needs looking at again. Um, but yeah, nice to see Obliakov back in midfield. And he played a 4-2-3-1. They got back to 1-1 in the game. They, they fell behind due to uh, Ivan Sergeyev's um, goal for Krulia. And then, yeah, in the second half, halfway through the second half, he changed his formation. He brought, um, I think it was Fyodor Chalofon, and went two up front. So he went from a 4-2-3-1 to a 4-4-2, with a Juke and Zayutdinov out wide, and uh, Chalof and um, Zabolotny up front. And then for his final move, he brought um, Alan Zagoyev onto the pitch um, and actually played a three-at-the-back formation with Zagoyev as actually a centre-half, a central defender who stepped out of the defensive line and played passes through. And it was actually one of these passes which um, phoned Chaloff for Siska's second of the three goals on 84 minutes. It was essentially the goal that won them the game. So it was good to see them switching the formation a couple of times in the second half. Uh, it was good to see that from Berezitsky because when we watched Siska's games last year under Olic, they, they didn't do any of that. It seemed like Olic just had one game plan and that was pretty much it, whereas it's nice to see a bit of tactical switching to win them the game. And it was interesting, I think Nicola Morrow briefly played as um, a third centre-back, I think, in one of the games against Siska. I think it was either at the back end of last season or beginning of this season. Uh, Dinamo reverted to a back three and played. Morrow was a, you know, a player who can bring it out from the back and step out the defensive line and play passes through. So you wonder if Berezitsky took that on. From um, from the way Dinamo played against Siska in that game, so so yeah, good to see them coming up the table a little bit. Admittedly, the caveat is the two opponents that they played not the highest quality of opponents, um, but you know it will get tougher for them. I think the next two games are Rubin um, away, and 
trying to think who they've got next. And Sochi, uh, Rubin and Sochi away in the next two games. So it will get tougher. But at least some steps in the right direction from um, from Alexei Berezutsky and Siskar. I like um, Ilzas Akmitov in this more advanced role. I think that suits him more. It's good to see him, you know, finding finding solutions, you know, with the Viol conversion mm-hmm. to a central defender. Um, they got a good win in the cup against uh, Lipetsk. Uh, they're through now into the last 16 and um, Bruno Fuchs came on in that game as a substitute. I think Deveyev is now fully back fit again. So some positives for Siska um, and let's see what Berezutsky and um, Siska can do in the upcoming weeks. But yeah, looks like they're turning around their season slowly over the last few weeks. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I like the, I know what, I'm going to praise somebody that I didn't expect to praise ever in a Siska shirt, and it's actually um, Anton Zabalotny up front. He scored again at the weekend. And what I think Zabalotny's doing well for Siska, which they've missed for quite some time, is while he's, he's got the odd goal here and there for them this season, but what I think he's doing really well is his... I think he's got he scored about three goals this season, but he's in the league. Uh, he's doing the dirty work again, like what I said. What Kral did so well for Spartak, but at the other end of the pitch, he's bringing other players into the game. His ability back to goal is second to none in Russia, probably only better than by Zuba. And I think that's potentially why you're seeing Azuke help partly helping Azuke move his game on. Why Akhmatov's move to playing as a number ten has worked so well. Is Zabalotny's that physical presence that Siska had been crying out for for so long? They tried doing it with Abel Hernandez. Hernandez played all right, um, but wasn't really that physical presence that they looked for. Uh, Ilya Shkurin, again, didn't quite work out for him. And what he's really emulating now is what I thought they would get in Rondon this time last winter, uh, last season. Where, But Rondon just didn't didn't perform well at all. He scored four goals in 10 games, but it was mostly penalties. And he just didn't show any of that that that, that drive, that power that he had last time at Zenit and Rubin. And then obviously when he moved to England and, and was a real target man and a real outlet up top. But Zabalotny's proving to be that so far. And the rest of the team, those around him, are really benefiting from it more so than he is himself. So credit to Zabalotny because he, he became a little bit of a joke figure for a time and maybe still is, but I think it's only so long that he can be a joke and I think he deserves some credit there. Uh, I'll quickly discuss one game myself that I also watched, which was Akmat Ural. Um, yes, I hear the cries of everybody listening is why did you decide to watch Akmat Ural? Um, well, I, I wanted to just see how Ural were doing. I haven't seen, like I said last week, I hadn't seen any of Ural this season because they were always on when more interesting games were taking place and more interesting teams were playing. So I decided to actively remedy that. And I wanted to see particularly how uh, Kuzmichev and Adamov were playing down uh, at the back. Uh, obviously, Adamov, Adamov has recently got his first call-up for the national team. And they've just got some interesting players all around the side as well. Pomazun in goal, Leo Goglachidza, uh, Kirill Koznachenka. And then some of the some of the youngsters like Luka Gagnidza and Artyo Maximenko, like they've got some a real interesting crop of youngsters there. And uh, unfortunately, they didn't have the greatest of games against Akma. It's not the easiest place to go, but it was really Pomazun that kept the minute for a lot of the game. 
Uh, he was uh, Ural's man of the match by quite some distance. I think he made six six saves, I think it was, in the end. Um, and Akhmat finally got the win by sending Sabai. Akhmat themselves, it was it was very much what you would expect from Talalaya's Akhmat, where they do admittedly give up more possession than they're used to. And it was only like fifty low 50s to Akhmat, high 40s Ural. But they just had a, a huge amount of shots on goal. It was like 20, I think it was 20, just over 20, yeah, 20 shots on Ural's goal by the end of the game. But what they really need to do for me is find some real clinical clinical nature in front of goal. Uh, the build-up play was fine. The defence was absolutely solid. Semyonov and Lisov at the back were barely troubled whatsoever. Uh, Timo Feyev controlled the game. Utkin had a real nice game as well, just... He only played an hour, and I don't think he was highly involved, but it was one of those performances where whenever he is involved, there was just a moment of quality. Like The, the very next touch was a, was a real moment of quality. Uh, Kanate, again, a bit like doing the doing the Zabalotny job. I think he only completed like eight passes or something during the course of the game, but was just real battling all the way through against Ural's back three. They just need to find some, more, like I said, a, a clinical finish to the game. They had 20 shots on goal, only six on target, a lot of them ones on target were, were saves you would probably expect Pomazoon to make. It was what in, in, what intrigued me, what impressed me, sorry, more about Pomazoon's performance was the how busy he was. He was there was a lot of crosses in the box to Kanate, as you would expect from from Akhmat. But it wasn't the greatest of games. <laughs> I think I'll be lying if I tried to pull a wool over everyone's eyes and saying that uh, it was <laughs> the lowest scoring game of the weekend in what was a very high-scoring weekend in general. Before going back to yourself, Richard, for your last game to cover, uh, it was this in this weekend of round 12, there was 32 goals in total. Uh, just to compare, in round 10, there was only 10 goals in total from all eight games. Um, this is the joint highest since... 32 goals again in RPL 2020-21 season. That was round 23 in March. Uh, the only time there was a round in which there was more goals scored, and that was the 35, again in round 23 in June 2020. Uh, as everyone might remember, that was the first COVID-interrupted season and involved a game when Sochi beat Rostov, kids 10-1. Uh, though that final game of that weekend was actually replayed a month later due to Krasnodar's COVID crisis. So let's just say that in an actual weekend itself, this is the highest goal scoring for quite some time. But statistically, the highest since June 2020. So having said that, with the 32 goals from eight games, it's typical that I decided to watch the one one goal scoring goals in the game. But Richards, how did uh, Dinamo play against Himke? Yeah, um, after the disappointment when that two goal lead slip against um, against Spartak, I think this was a nice nice repost from Dinamo. Um, they were two 0 up at half time, um, and grad generally dominated the game. Um, you know, I think Himki have not been as good this season, and um, Igor Chervchenko unfortunately recently lost his job uh, due to some poor results. But I thought Dinamo were played a really good game um you know even though some of the results at home recently haven't been great you know the disappointing loss 
losses to Krilia and to um, Nishni, two promoted clubs. Dinamo have created a lot of chances this year against a lot of opponents. So I think at some point, if they got it right, then, you know, they would gradually due to, you know, really put someone to the sword and they, they put him key to the sword. Um, Arsene Zakayam playing in this more deeper role in midfield in the, in the three behind the, behind the attacking outlet. And, you know, he provided three assists, two of them from corners, admittedly. But again, Dinamo proving that they're very good with these corners at the near post because they got two goals from them. Um through, through good deliveries at the near post. Um, it's nice to see Chukarvin continuing to score goals. Um, Got to say, with Chaloff's, um, sorry, with uh, Smoloff's, Fyodor Smoloff's current drop in form, Chukarvin can get a few more goals for the international break starts. wonder if there is a case for him, I mean, we'll get on to Spornay a bit later, I wonder if there is a, maybe even a case for him starting up front, at least in one of the games, maybe against Cyprus. Um but yeah, it, it was a good performance from Dinamo, nice and comfortable. And then even more impressive that they backed it up in the midweek against Orenburg. Now, I have to admit, I was quite worried about them in this game because obviously it was a Russian Cup match. They had to to win to go through. Um, and they were playing probably, you might say, arguably the best side in the Feniel in Orenburg. You know, there's certainly a side who I would probably say are probably favourites to come top of the league. Um, and it was away from home. But yeah, Dinamo completely just swept Orenberg aside. They made a few changes. Um, but Igor Leshuk back in in goal. Segai Parshaviuk came in at left, at right back. Roman Yevgeniev came into the side instead of Ivan Ordets. And um, Kutitsky, the young defensive midfielder, came in. They, you know, they rested a few players. Fomin was on the bench. Mora was on the bench. Szymanski came back into the midfield. Um, but yeah, still a very comfortable uh, performance. And then they got an early goal through Konstantin Chukarvin. Another assist for Marcin Zakayan, and then Nikola Moro and uh, Roman Yevgeniev wrapped it up late on with two late goals. I think they've gone through in the group stage with nine goals conce- nine goals scored in the two cup matches and zero conceded Dinamo, so very comfortable. Um, okay, you might say the game against Zenit's coming up was coming up three days afterwards, but it, it, it you know they rested and rotated a little bit. Yaroslav Gladshev got some minutes up front as well. I think he came on against Himke as well, so. Schwartz has used the squad quite a bit, and I'm really looking forward to the to their match against um against Zenit tomorrow. Um, be interesting to see the approach that they deploy. Given Zenit's recent switch in formation, I would not be surprised to see maybe Dinamo tell Morrow and Fomin to maybe sit a bit deeper. I think they probably might play Zakarian in this deeper role um, against um, Zenit to try and combat, you know, Wendell and uh, Barrios in midfield. Suspect they might tuck the fullbacks in quite tight as well. It's an interesting test for Dinamo because I think they go into this game with nothing to lose. Um, I think because they are underdogs and Zenit are definitely favourites and they confirm that for the league and they confirm that with that dominant win over Spartak. But we're interested to see what Dinamo do. I'm, I'm interested in the performance from Dinamo's point of view. You know, even if they lose, they lose just two one or something and show some fight. At least that puts them in a good stead for the rest of the season. Um, and you know, maybe those five drop points, maybe that will take the pressure off them a little bit. Because had they got those, um, had they hold, held on against Spartak and got a win, and had they beaten one of Nishni or um, or Krilia at home and, and we're actually two points ahead of Zenit going into this game. Maybe the pressure might have been more on them because, you know, they would have been leading the table. But, you know, now maybe the pressure's off a little bit because Zenit are ahead of them again. So 
interesting to see what they can do. I, I, I'm really intrigued to see. I think it's a good barometer this game of just how far Schwartz has, has brought Dynamo. I think they've definitely improved a lot under him, but this is the real acid test now. How much? Um, so yeah, this is a game that tomorrow evening I'm, I'm very much looking forward to to watching and. Um, yeah, it's a good barometer to see how much they've improved. But yeah, overall, a good week from from, from Dynamo overall. And hopefully a nice draw in the Russian Cup coming. And um, yeah, because it's a tournament they should definitely be looking to try and do well in, I think. You know, the league might mm-hmm. be a bit, a bit of a stretch this year, but the Cup certainly represents a chance for them to have a run. And, you know, with a favourable draw too, then could, they could have a deep run in that. But yeah, good performance from them against Himke and um, a good way to bounce back after the, the, the drop points against Spartak late on. I must admit every uh, to everyone, uh, we did mention Dinamo Himki last week very slightly because we recorded on the Saturday. Um, <laughs> but I, to be honest, I just wanted to mention Dinamo again because it's any excuse to discuss Arsene Zaharian, um, one of the bright lights of, of the game at the minute in Russia and just how good he was last weekend. Uh, but yeah, I agree. The Really looking forward to the game this weekend. I think that's arguably going to be the most intriguing and the closest game so far. I think the one of the, the by far the best team against the most one of the most interesting younger sides who are really performing well at the minute as well. Uh really, really looking forward to that. I was I was looking forward to Spartak Zenit and then I remembered that Spartak are horrendous against Zenit. But this could be better. This could <laughs> actually be a close match. <laughs> <laughs> just want to say um, as well, just just want to come in and say as well uh, one last thing I will say that Dino is and I was a bit sceptical when they bought him in the summer because I, I thought last season he was a bit hit and miss. Guillermo Varela has done very well at, at Dinamo. Um, I saw that the goal that he did, the first goal that they scored against Rubin in their recent victory over Rubin, it was from his cross and it was a good combination play on the right, I think, from him and between him and Denis Makarov. And I've got to say, he stepped it up this year. I thought last season he was quite hit and miss, um, Varela, but, you know, and I thought when they bought him, I thought. Had he done enough to be bought permanently? But this season, I've got to say, I think he's been performing very well. He's got a good cross on him from that right side. So, yeah, I think he's one player who's also made strides forward uh, this season. But, yeah, Zakayan looks a terrific talent. And he, he has actually been linked in recent weeks, hasn't he, to some of the top clubs. I think mean, I heard Man United and Barcelona, wasn't it? I mm. mean, maybe that's probably a bit too far at this moment in time. But it's good to see that that his performances and his breakthrough onto the scene is, is getting noticed, which is which is great for all of us to, to, to witness. Yeah, certainly. Hopefully it is getting noticed. I'm sure the scouts will know exactly how, exactly how good he is. Potentially early links to those stature of clubs are maybe a little bit of tabloid sensationalism from certain parts of the, the media. We all know where, exactly where I'm coming from, but Hopefully, it's a sign of things to come for Zaharian in general. Speaking of Zaharian, but moving on from Dinamo to the colours of the Sponaya team, uh, Valeri Karpin midweek announced his latest. <laughs> Sorry, I can't, I can't do this without laughing every single time. Right, so it's Valeri Karpin, <laughs> for everyone who may not know, has uh, has. <laughs> put together a 41-man squad ahead of Russia's next international break. So, to quickly mention the squad, um, by our estimates, I say our, by David's estimates, because David does all that, all the, most, uh, all the Twitter accounting. When you say any interesting facts, it's probably David's facts. 
Uh, since being appointed as Russian national team manager, Valery Karpin's called up to 50, called up 53 different players in just three squads. Ten goalkeepers have received a national team call-up since August 2021. Galeme, Safanov, Dupin, Maximenka, Pesyakov, Luniov, Kristiuk, Zhenaya, Volantratov, and now Haikin, the new guy. Uh, in the later squad, only Akhmat, Nizhny and Arsenal Tula don't have a player in it from the RPL, and four of them are based from outside Russia. So to get all of that out of the way, get, strap yourselves in for the next uh, 45 minutes while I actually read the squad itself. <laughs> So in goal, it's Guillermo, Zhenaev, Lantratov, Safanov and Haikin. Uh, it's Maiden, Lan- Maiden called up for Lantratov and Haiken. He is Norway-based, plays for Bordeaux Glimt, who just beat Roma 6-1 in the Conference League. Uh, in defence, Arsene Adamov, and then Zhikia, Deveev, Karavayev, Klugovoy, Kudryashov, Osipenka, Samoshnikov, Sutorman, Terekov and Chistyakov. Uh, that's a first call for Klugovoy, and the uncapped Adamov retains his place in the squad. In midfield, Akhmetov, Bakayev, Baranov, Glebov, Glushakov, Golovin, Yezhov, Yurokin, Jamaletdinov, Zaharian, Zobnin, Yonov, Kazyaev, Maradashvili, Mostovoy, Mukin, Poloz, Fomin, and Chernikov. That's a debut call up for Roman Yezhov, the Karelia winger. Uh, Locos, Konstantin Maradashvili and Krasnodar's young midfielder, Alexander Chernikov. Uh, don't know why Polos is in their mind. And up front, Agalarov, Zabolotny, Sergeyev, Smolov and Tukarvin. So Sergeyev is the only debut call-up in this group. Uh, Agalarov remains his, keeps his spot in the current extended squad as he remains the RPL top scorer. So, 41-person extended squad. Obviously, it's going to be trimmed down. I think that's a given at this point, and, and, and everything must be prefaced with that. But, Richard, have you genuinely ever seen a squad from any country in the world this big? <laughs> Generally, no. Um, it's It's unlike anything I've ever seen, unlike any approach I've ever seen. Uh, I don't know why Carpine's doing it. I mean, is it call, announce his squad early, make it as big as possible, and then maybe that puts keeps the players on their toes so that come come when they has to trim it down, he, you know, they've had a game mm. so he can assess their performances and then, you know, trim it down based on that game. But it seems a strange one to me. Just announce the squad later and just call up a smaller squad. <laughs> I've never, never known an approach like it. it. It's totally bizarre, James. I mean, we're all baffled by it, me, you, and David. We we just can't get our heads around why he's doing it. And and you know, I I don't get it. it it's it's it gives the indication that you know he's just it's like desperation. You know, a man who doesn't really know what he's doing. Even though I yeah. will caveat the fact that you know it gives that impression. It is obviously based on the results so far with an 80% win record and an unbeaten so far a Sporty manager Carpine has got some good results and he's done a good job so far. You know he's negotiated a potentially Certainly. tricky situation that Churchesoff left for him. But yeah, just such a scattergun approach to it gives the impression that it's not really know what he's doing. I must admit, yeah, I'm not a fan of of, of calling up so many players. I wish, you know, just just call up a Call up even if you're going to just call up an extended squad, make it 30, 32. I could understand that and then trim five or six off for the final squad, but 41 players in a squad. 
Nah, it's too many, I think. Um, yeah, but you know, it's worked so far, so I'll, I'll, I'll reserve full judgment. But yeah, I think mm. I, I'd prefer to see just a bit later announcement of the squad and, a, and just a, a normal squad called up from the start rather than big extended squads. But hey, yo, there must be a method to the madness, even though it's <laughs> it's unlike anything I've ever seen before. If anyone's got any similar comparisons to size of squad from maybe the country you're from or, or whatever, give us a tweet, direct message, email, whatever, and let us know because I, I'm genuinely interested in seeing any other form of international squad, even extended like this, obviously before the cutdown, that is this big. It's pretty much incorporating... I mean, 53 players is is, is pretty much incorporating... Almost everybody in the national pool who's like eligible and realistic. Uh, I can see some arguments. I've, I've mentioned this before how it's beneficial to give some players experience in the national setup, giving them some of the younger lads the, uh, uh, who are going to be there for some time, getting them bedded in early, giving them experience, even if it is just the training ground, just getting used to the regime of the flights back and forth, the lifestyle of being called up into international games and such. That's, I can see, the benefit of this sort of big squad. Um, I can see the benefit of Carpen wanting to get eyes on players, wanting to see them in training, even if it is only for a couple of weeks, not want to see them in video or for far away, but actually get up and close and work with them one-to-one. That I can understand as well. Uh, wanting to give people a chance, totally understand. But what's strange is, is what unless he's increasing the amount of coaches, which as far as I'm aware, he's not. The problem is, is it's like teaching the, or in any sort of aspect of a mentor role. The more students you have, the more players you have, and the less coaches you have or teachers you have, the less one-on-one time each individual player gets, the less meaningful time they get to develop. It then just becomes not as important as a whole. One talented coach can do far more with a group of 20 players than a group of 40, 40 players. Because of that extra time, that extra intimacy, it sounds of a silly way of saying intimacy. If there's a better word, let us know. But just that 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 close development, the eye for detail, real getting into the nitty gritty of problems that they would face in the career, in the in the way they train at the club, being given new perspectives. That it's it's all it's all aided by a, a higher ratio of coaches to players. The more coaches, the better. And that's true across the game. Why Iceland had their golden generation, it wasn't just a a look of the draw that they had all of these players from the similar age groups hitting form at the same time, getting moves to big European clubs at the same time. A lot of that was done a long time ago by increasing the access to academies, increasing their access to pitches, and more importantly, reducing the costs of coaching badges and increasing the ratio of coaches to players in the country. So I can see part of what Carpen's trying to do here. The problem is, is that, it, like you said, Richard, it seems scattergun. He comes across as a man who doesn't quite know what he's doing. It's like 
taking 40 shots on goal, the probability is at least one of them is going to hit. At least one of them will go in. It's quantity over quality, it seems like. But again, I like what you said there, Richard, where the, the whole th- whole argument has to be caveated with on the pitch where it matters, he's doing very well. The results are there. Performances, maybe not, but it's a results-driven business and the results most certainly are there, more so than any man- Russian manager in very late, at least in the short term. So it's it, it, it's all very, just a bit odd. Um, it, it's really hard to unpack, to be quite honest, Richard. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's odd, and you know, in the last international break, you know, I've got to say, Russia were not amazing in the last international break, but they got the results and they got the business done. And you have to say, considering it was only Carpine's, what was it, his um, fourth and fifth matches, Spornaya manager, he didn't, mm-hmm. he got got the results in two tricky environments against Slovakia, where you know, the likes of Diveev and. Um, and Georgi Shakir at the back were, were rocks, absolutely outstanding. And then away at Slovenia, again, can be a difficult place to go. Not always easy, but, you know, they went there and got the job done. Um, the two upcoming matches are really intriguing because obviously Cyprus at home, they're obviously out of contention now. So you'd expect Russia to beat that home. You, you could call it the calm before the storm because then they have to go away and face Croatia, um, which is obviously a very tough match, even if Croatia aren't quite the force that they were four years ago when they reached the World Cup final. Although one thing I have seen with that Croatia game, which I find quite interesting, is um, it's actually been played in split. Um, And I do remember reading about Croatia, because I was expecting that game to be played at the Maximir National Stadium in Zagreb, where Dinamo Zagreb play. And um, until England won the 5-1 in 2009 under Fabio Capello, I actually read that. Croatia had a formidable home record at the Maximir Stadium. I think even countries like Italy went to play Croatia in, at the Maximir and didn't beat them. So I was really stunned to find that game being played in split. I don't know whether there's a reason for it, but but yeah, um, it, it's been yeah, it's chaotic with the amount of call-ups that Carpine has done, but I'll give him his credit. Results on the pitch have been good and Russia go into this international upcoming international break with qualification for the World Cup in their own hands if they get four points in these two games. Um, you know, win against Cyprus, a draw against Croatia, they're through to the um to the finals of the, the World Cup. So yeah, it's in their hands, as chaotic as it sounds and um, you know, as scattergun as it sounds, Carpina has got the results. So but yeah, looking forward to that Croatia game especially. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it, it all comes down to that one game, whether they can get obviously win the group. Or it's, it's an obvious thing to say, but in regards to Croatia playing in split or not, they've actually moved around quite a bit during this um, qualifying campaign so far. If you look at some of Croatia's games, their two-all draw at home to Slovakia was in Osijek. The 3-0 win over Slovenia was played in um, in split again. And the recent 3-1 win against Scotland? No, not Scotland. Sorry. That was the bloody, bloody Euros. Um, before then, uh, where was it? World Cup qualifiers back in March of 2021. They played Malta in split as well. So they've been moving around a little bit, not just playing in Zagreb. I must admit, I'm not quite sure why either, Richard. But I, I, like you, I'm, I am relieved that that is the case. Uh, they're an absolute force in there, and anything that can make Russia's game 
easy, even easier is is the better. Uh, if we do move on though from the Sponaya team, and we'll quickly just finish up a uh, little bit of news: the Russian Cup took place midweek. Um, the next round will have nine RPL teams, six Finna L teams, and one Finna L two team. The draw was to take place on the second of November. Uh, rather than go through the entirety of the results, because as people may remember, the first round is a groups, various of groups. Uh, the groups, the teams who are through are Zenith, Loco, Spartak, Sochi, Ruben, Dinamo, Arsenal, and Nizhny from the RPL. Uh, Alania, Yense, Baltica, Kuban, Kamaz, and Rota from the Fenel, and Chaika from the Fenel too. And just quickly before we do go, um, there's been a little bit of a controversy regarding. A tweet by Eldor Shomorodov, of course, Uzbek striker, formerly of Rostov. Um, in the wake of Australian footballer Josh Cavallo's coming out story, uh, whether or not this tweet is actually Shomorodov, it seems like it's more likely that it's not him. Um, but it basically goes on to say that to denigrate people who are homosexual quite badly and... Uh, without reading it out, because it's disgusting language and a disgusting tweet, I'm not going to say go find it. I think it, the account has been suspended now. Um, but it's just attacking his the player after he made such a proud move um, and a brilliant one at that by Cavallo. It's a shame that he, must, has, that he has to be put in this position, but absolute credit to him with hopefully he started a little bit of a revolution with any luck. Um, but it seems like people expect I think that this is more so a Shomorodov fan account. Um, they did claim in a previous tweet last week that they are a fan, but have do pretend to be Shomorodov, like they say, like official athlete of Nike and Roma. Like it's 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 faked or uh, pretended to be real. With any luck, it's not. I don't think Shomorodov himself would be silly enough to air such views in public while in such a high profile club in Roma, who are very forward thinking from a marketing perspective but it did need to be addressed um and i hope that uh intelligence does prevail and it, it shows that it was not the player himself who's been a fine form again for roma this season and one of the best rpl exports of the last few years but with that on a little bit of a sour note unfortunately that is the end of this week's podcast uh, as richard did allude to earlier this weekend we see the top teams clash as Zenit take on Dinamo. Elsewhere, Ruben Siska, Spartak Rostov, Krasnodar Krilia, Nizhny Loko, Ufa Akmat, Arsenal Sochi and Timki Ural. But until then, this has been the Russian Football News Podcast. Goodbye for now. Веди его, беги, точнее его ударь Но мяч берет ноги решительный вратарь Не напрасно футбольное поле Самых ловких и смелых плечок Здесь нужны тренировка и воля Быстрота, увлечение, расчет